0: Welcome to the Sympathetic People podcast. The podcast by sympathetic people, for sympathetic people. Right, so this morning we're going to talk for a change about evolution, Uh, but in this case a little bit more generally. I'm going to start by reading something really short from... a a recent article that I've written, then I'm going to read a really, really, really short Darwin quote, and then we're just going to see how the conversation goes. So we often hear people saying that evolution is just a theory, and then sometimes we hear other people saying, no, evolution is not a theory. And I guess one of the things we will discuss will be perhaps, you know, what, those might mean, those statements might mean, so what theory actually means in the context of science and what it might mean to claim that evolution is not a theory. But anyway, here's, uh, here's this little excerpt of my own writing. Let's be clear about one thing. Evolution is not a theory. Evolution is an observable fact about the world we inhabit. In science, Theories are not subordinate to facts, theories explain facts. Facts are accurate observations. Theories connect facts and attempt to explain why we observe them. There are many evolutionary theories, some well accepted, such as Darwinian natural selection, and others highly speculative, or at least still more hypothetical than theoretical. Explanation is the highest goal of science, and theories are as good as it gets. Okay, and now I will quickly skip to uh, one of our venerable predecessors, Darwin, and just a, a quote from, from one of his notebooks, not actually published during his lifetime. but um, So it's kind of fragmented as a note. But, Origin of man now proved. Metaphysic must flourish. He who understands baboon would do more towards metaphysics than Locke, right? So,
1: <laughs> perhaps, yeah, but like uh, it has to, be, I guess, explain that Locke is John Locke,
0: yes. right? Yes, jo- Locke is, is John Locke, of course, you know, one of the great uh, early empiricist philosophers, you know, post-Enlightenment empiricist philosophers, uh, you know, early philosopher of science, I guess you might say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah like I just a, thought that was a pith- like full <laughs> yeah that was just a, a I think a pithy little quote which can potentially open this up to a broader philosophical
1: discussion I actually I feel, I feel like that that, that is uh, that aligns quite well with my view that mm-hmm. you know if you understand the way the baboon works then you understand the world at large in a you know greater way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I obviously think something somewhat similar to that. I mean, I think uh, that it's it's such a it's hard to know where to begin really because it's so interesting. Not just the you know not just the various theories of evolution, and obviously not just um, you know Darwin's natural selection and sexual selection. You know those those theories which. Um, which really we most associate with with evolution today, but the whole history of evolutionary thinking is fascinating, and how you know people have seized on it with great enthusiasm, and then it's disgraced itself in some way, or people have you know tried to you know we have things like social Darwinism, and it becomes a bad mm. you know it becomes tainted, it becomes a bad word, and then it comes back into into fashion, and all that stuff is 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 fascinating. And some of the early evolutionary thinkers, or some of the early Victorian evolutionary thinkers, obviously evolutionary thought goes back, you know, all the way with with human thought in in some guise or another. But um, some of the early Victorian evolutionary thinkers, you know, contemporaries of of Darwin, people like Herbert Spencer, um, who also, you know, is somewhat responsible for social Darwinism, and who came up with the term the survival of the fittest and, and all of that, um, he very quickly went to the idea that, you know, and publicly went to this idea that evolution kind of explains everything and the entire structure of reality is evolution and it is evolutionary. And I think we can see in that Darwin quote there that Darwin thought something similar, you know, that in, in order to understand metaphysics, so in order to understand the nature of reality, uh, study specific evolutionary examples of specific organisms and i think because of this weird tension and because people have tried really hard to make sure that evolution is a is a hard science and we can't speculate too much and also because when you get into metaphysics you start getting into this thing with theology and you know it becomes really complicated and knotty i think a lot of contemporary evolutionary thinkers both biologists certainly but also evolutionary philosophers they kind of tend to back away a little bit from this idea which is very central in my thinking and i think yours which is that what's really deep about, you know, Darwin's insight uh, is not just that it can explain, you know, how certain organisms got the traits that they have and, and why we see the diversity of organisms on the planet that we do today, but that it really does say something deep about the very structure of reality itself. And I think people back off from that because it's a big claim and it's a daunting claim and, it you know, the kind of evidence that you have to bring together to make those sorts of arguments in an even halfway scientific um way is 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 challenging but yeah i think some people just don't go too far like they're a bit gun shy <laughs>
1: yeah mate but uh what what would be interesting to see is how you would distinguish like what differences you would see between that and the thinking that you know physics explains everything with mm-hmm. you know highly like you know what the same accuracy like i don't know symmetry everything is symmetrical True. so you know symmetry mm-hmm. as a you know the core principle of reality and if, whatever you look it's symmetry right mm-hmm. or you can go into alchemy and say that everything is composed of the three elements you know was like stable theory and you know kind of like airy mm-hmm. And you can see them everywhere. If you start to look at Kabbalah, for that matter, right? Mm-hmm. If you start looking for numbers, you'll be like, well, numbers everywhere, golden ratio everywhere." Mm-hmm. So, the uh, question that I think a lot of people will have, and you know, certainly that I definitely uh, know that people were asking me when I was, you know, kind of saying similar mm. things but uh, "What's uh, you know, how do you know that basically that?" Uh, way of thinking of yours is not just a framework like you know you kind of mm-hmm. you know so you saw the pattern and now you just keep seeing that pattern sure. everywhere like, into Kabbalah right yeah. so how do you know that your uh, way of you know looking at things this framework is more powerful than you know Kabbalah or physics for that matter sure. or whether they are at the same you know uh, kind of is a stage a state, right so that you can use in physics to get the same understanding or you can go evolution and get the same understanding
0: yeah well i think this i think you hit on a very important point and i think that is where some anxiety arises and i do i do think that there are lots of deep principles about the way reality is and i think that lots of different groups of investigators coming at them from very different perspectives whether it's you know pre-scientific Uh, You know, a purely introspective perspective, you know, both of you and I think that a lot of, you know, ancient contemplatives have some, you know, deep metaphysical insights. Um, So I think, you know, whether it's a very mechanistic kind of thing like physics, obviously there are very, very deep principles, laws of physics, which have incredibly solid uh, empirical support. And... In a lot of cases, if you're coming up with with another theory, you better be sure that it doesn't violate those laws because they are so well supported. I think in general, whenever you're coming up with with an attempt to define some sort of deep principle of reality, you want to check that it's not directly violating uh, some of the best supported areas of science. And I think it's, a, it's kind of a whole other discussion what the difference is. Well, I mean, it's an int- it's a part, important part of this discussion, but what the difference is between the actual content of the laws of physics and the interpretation of the laws of physics. Because there are a lot of uh, attempts to interpret the laws of physics into metaphysics. Uh, and we see that kind of thing, like just an easy way of highlighting that is looking at the different interpretations of quantum mechanics uh the laws of quantum mechanics are extremely well supported obviously and they've been used in lots of technology they're amongst the most precise laws in all of science but there are many different interpretations of them in terms of what they actually mean for the structure of reality you know famous things like the copenhagen interpretation versus the many worlds interpretation we don't need to go into all those differences here but physicists themselves, specialists in quantum mechanics, don't agree on those. So sometimes your deep principle might be consistent with the laws of physics, but inconsistent with one or more of those interpretations. And it may be that none of those interpretations of the laws of physics, or none of the mainstream ones, are really accurate, You know, are really getting at what reality is like. But anyway, so why is evolution different from these things? Well, in some way, different from other things like you were mentioning, like symmetry or Kabbalah or or whatever. In some ways, it's not necessarily different from those. In other ways, it's actually it may be different because of the fact that the claim that one might be making in saying that evolution or that reality is evolutionary is actually a pretty soft claim. And I think that some evolutionists themselves have been a little bit afraid of definitions of evolution that might make it seem trivially true. I'm sort of at the point now where I'm not so concerned about that because in some sense, I think it is trivially true. So, the definition, uh, or the kind of the principle of evolution that I've that I've come to as the most simple way I can state it right now, and it would be interesting to get your reaction to this anyway, is evolution takes place whenever and wherever change occurs with forces that <laughs> I'm saying this in really bad emphasis. Sorry, evolution takes place whenever and wherever change occurs with forces that selectively constrain or limit that change. Um, Actually, that's the editor's phrasing I'm looking at in this version of my article. I prefer to say evolution takes place whenever and wherever change co-occurs with forces that selectively constrain or limit that change. Um,
1: Okay, but how would you then mm -hmm. uh, distinguish between evolution, like, you know, the change that uh, like a chemical reaction, right? Yeah. You have a chemical reaction, and you have a spontaneous breaking of one molecules into two. Is it evolution?
0: Yes. In the in the in the most basic sense, I believe it is evolution. Yes. So I think evolution is differentiated from change because yeah. there are forces that selectively constrain or limit the change, and that is evolution. So for me, evolution is a met- metaphysical principle. Is essentially just like process metaphysics in, you know, like Alfred North Whitehead's metaphysics. It's essentially just the, or even Heraclitus's metaphysics. It's essentially just the notion that change is constant. So things are changing, things are moving, things are processes. They are not static, they're not timeless. And that can almost seem immediately to run afoul of some of the laws of physics in ways that we might want to talk about. I don't believe that it does. But I'm saying the fundamental things of reality are not timeless entities with essential properties. So I, you know, I refute Plato there. Um, they are things that are in, they are dynamic. They are changing, and they're changing in relation to each other. They are inter interdependent with one another, and those relationships that they have with other things that are also changing are those form the constraints that shape the future states that any of these systems that we're talking about um, can form. So
1: it's oh, a very so in thing. that but in that definition the. Uh, yeah. uh, So genetic change would be evolutionary
0: change. When you say genetic change, I I think I know what you mean, but I think you might want to unpack that slightly.
1: Like when you are, you know, growing up, that would be evolution.
0: Onto genetic change, okay. Yeah. Yeah, developmental change. Yes, that is evolution. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And I realise that a lot of evolutionary theorists, particularly within biology, might be uncomfortable with that definition
1: it definitely will be yes because for them it you know you'd require like the change from generation to generation is kind of what they like to think about yeah but right?
0: that's because they think about evolution in terms of natural selection uh, and maybe in terms of sexual selection and certain other, they think about evolution as the changing as changes of gene frequency in populations across generations.
1: That's by not the e- way, just, but, yeah. just like a side note, as a very minor side, I yeah. to go there. I never quite understood the. I mean, I, I I understand the definitions, but I don't understand the fact that you know sexual selection is not hierarchically lower than natural selection, because in my understanding, sexual sexual selection is you know a subset. Of natural selection, but it's not like that, and that just always kind of irks me because that's weird. Because sexual selection is just another selection factor, right?
0: Yeah, but like, so sexual selection is specifically mate preference, as yeah. Opposed to but natu- oh, hang on, natural selection is differential survival. So, natural selection is specifically about. I mean, I know what yeah. you mean because they're very closely yeah, but related.
1: There will, will be, you know, like people, you or people, organisms will have differential survival based on their uh, how they perform in sexual selection.
0: They will have differential uh, fitness, they'll have differential yeah. reproduction. See, both sexual selection and natural selection get their cash value or they reduce to fitness. Um, so they reduce to getting, you know, the number of gametes that you, you know, get into the yeah. next. Um, so, yeah, they both cash out in the same way, but they are different mechanisms. Natural selection is about differential survival because of, um, you know, possessing the right suite of traits that
1: makes... Yeah, you know, I, like I don't understand that, yeah. you know, definition-wise it's like that. I'm just not understanding why it's not made into, you know, higher hierarchy. Like, you can restate that, you know, natural, you can restate natural selection through, you know, differential survival of your offsprings. And then sexual selection will necessarily feed as a subset of that.
0: Yeah, but that isn't, yep. that's the thing. You, you, that wouldn't be natural selection, then. That would be the resource... Um, that that organisms are competing for so to speak you know the the resource being getting your genetic material into the next generation so fitness so both natural selection and sexual selection are cashed out in terms of fitness value but they are different select the actual thing that selects that determines the you know goodness of the fit that determines the fitness the aptness of the fit is a different thing. In the one case, it's the environment um, as a whole, kind of. Um, but in terms of differential survival, in the other case, it's mate selection in terms of purely in terms of preference. Um, so they're
1: obviously very, yeah. very
0: very closely related. But I think yeah,
1: like I don't like I don't understand you know that obviously. It's just I like I always you know fail to understand why they're not grouped in the you know as a higher level of thing because. You know, you can look at it from the because what matters in natural selection as well is how that you know you survive in order to reproduce, right? Yeah, yeah. So your fitness is irrelevant if you don't reproduce at all, for sure. So, of course, what matters is what matters is you know how you go to the reproduction, and mm-hmm. that will uh, unite those two things, you know, under the umbrella of just like we have different factors that out your. Uh, absolutely ability to reproduce
0: yes yeah, so they are united in exactly that way they are united in whatever umbrella term you want to use biological evolution or they're both components yeah. of the like, you know, what, what synthesis. I, or...
1: because natural selection necessarily implies that every other selection is done not by nature and that just doesn't go right with you know the way I I don't know like to use the word nature. Yeah, for sure. Because but I think that's just selection. is just you know, as far as an individual is concerned, mate, selection is uh, you know natural selection for him in the way that it's made. It's the natural factor, right? So it's not different for the individual than you know the intensity of you know sun in the region that you're living at. Because it for you it's an external factor, not different in any how way. So, yes.
0: Well, it is, it is obviously, it's different in its specifics. And obviously, I agree with you that, um, you know, the use of natural in natural selection, if that implies that sexual selection is not somehow natural, then that is clearly fallacious. But... That's just you being too literal with the use of the word, you know, natural selection. And if you want, you can have a capital N and a capital S to make it clear that we are referring to a defined principle is different from sexual selection. I mean, it's a it's a key difference, at least in the early part of Theorizing about biological evolution done by, say, Darwin and Wallace. You know, it's a key area in which they disagreed about things. Um, Darwin had natural selection and sexual selection. Like he was aware of them both as as principles from the very beginning. He does mention sexual selection in in on the Origin of Species, but he doesn't really talk about it very much. And then this controversy kept building about whether or not. Natural selection was sufficient to explain certain key characteristics of humans. Obviously, and I keep saying obviously, and I need to stop doing that. Um, a key one is, of course, humans' mental capacities, uh, and another one is something as seemingly banal as human hairlessness. And Wallace, who was a you know, is credited as the co-discoverer of natural selection, of course. I mean, that kind of ignores the fact that other people had said pretty similar things, even, you know, prior to Darwin having published. Um, Darwin had also been working famously on the theory of natural selection for 20 years before he received this bolt out of the blue from Wallace, this letter from Malaysia in 1858. Um in which Wallace basically said, oh, hi, Charles, you know, I respect you a great deal as a, as a, you know, biological thinker, and I've had this crazy idea, you know, I had malaria, and I had this big hallucinatory episode in which I suddenly realised that the reason we see all this diversity of natural forms, of species, you know, of, of, of organisms, is because of this principle of, um, of differential survival, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so famously, they then co-published together. But... Wallace later on, he started to feel very uncertain of whether or not natural selection was a sufficient mechanism to explain certain human characteristics. He was particularly concerned about humans and how special we were and how different we were from other organisms, which Darwin denied from the beginning. You know, Darwin made it very clear in his early writings that. Things, characteristics that humans have are just, you know, maybe slightly dialed up versions of things that animals have. And the more time you spend with animals, the more similar you see that they are to us and all of that kind of stuff. But because Wallace became very um, vocally and publicly um, doubtful about the power of natural selection in this key area... Darwin uh, and you know Wallace again being very intimately associated with the theory in its the origins of the theory. Um, Darwin ended up writing the Descent of Man, you know, published in I don't know 1872 or something in the 70s, 1870s, um, which is more of a focus on sexual selection. And Darwin is basically saying, you're right. Natural selection doesn't necessarily or can't necessarily account for things like the mental faculties of, of humans, but perhaps sexual selection, a distinct mechanism, can. Perhaps because uh, you know, very, very smart individuals, and perhaps for reasons that are also naturally selected in the first instance, uh, the idea would be that natural selection forms the basis of a certain trait – but then a kind of, you know, quote-unquote arbitrary fascination with that trait by the opposite sex forms a feedback loop and then that trait gets blown out of all proportions. It's like, you know, you know the handicap principle. So Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, better explain it now that I've mentioned it, but just just things like the peacock tail, they seem to be... um, Things that would actually hinder the survival of a peacock, a male peacock. They make it harder to fly. They make them much more conspicuous to predators, etc. So Zahavi, uh, a, a an evolutionary theorist in the you know second half of the 20th century. So I guess he would have been in the 1970s or 80s when he came up with this. I'm not sure of the exact date, but really he was just making a refined observation about sexual selection that you know Darwin had already made. Um, it's pretty hard to say anything about evolution, biological evolution, that Darwin didn't say. By the way, he said a lot. Um, he just basically said that um, yes, it may well be the case that this would actually hinder the um, the survival of individuals, but it's been driven to this stage because of the fascination of um, female peacocks with you know incredibly shiny, bright displays, and. I guess the novel, slightly novel insight that Harvey had with the handicap principle is that it also might be that males are showing off how good they are at acquiring resources. I have so many extra resources. I don't need to put them all into just making myself, you know, plump and strong and, and everything. I can also grow this ludicrous tail. So it's a slightly different, again, version of sexual selection there, but... um. I mean, hopefully that makes it clear why they are different. They definitely are different, but you're definitely right that they are ultimately about the same resource. You know, you and I wrote an article together several years ago called Resource by Proxy, in which we covered a lot of this sort of stuff. You know, the ultimate resource in terms of biological evolution is mates, is, well, is fitness, basically. So everything else is cashed out in terms of fitness.
1: Yeah, well, you can cash out, like, as we were discussing exactly there in, you know, the gamuts. Yeah. So you can use yeah. gamets as, like, a monetary value of mm. the fitness. Mm. I mean, so, like, you know, the gamuts that, you know, survive or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So, but, I mean, yeah, obviously, they are all different, as in, they're stated different. It's just the fact that, you know, since, like, by, lo- you know, not only... Just people who you know know about evolution and read about evolution, but even by evolutionary biologists, they uh, a lot of them tend to think of those as two separate mechanisms mm-hmm. that you know don't connect anyhow other way than they connect as in you know they bring the individual to you know not individual organism to you know life. They make the evolution of organism, but they don't connect them. They don't see that you know mate selection is an external factor.
0: Mm. Well, I wonder, I wonder if that's true. I mean, I think that's true probably for some people, but I also have the impression that a lot of maybe working biologists as opposed to evolutionary theorists, you know, as opposed to people who are very specifically working in evolutionary theory, tend to think of natural selection as biological evolution. You know, they tend to think of them as the same thing. So they discount a lot of other forces, say the influence of drift, Um, In so the influence of acquiring neutral change in the absence of any constraining selection, they tend to minimize those sorts of things and think that... And again, that kind of goes back to the the early days of, of, of Darwin as well. And he certainly seemed, even though he had sexual selection there from the beginning, to feel that natural selection was doing basically all the work or, you know, 99% of the work. And I think as we've got more and more, uh, certainly as we've got more and more data, and certainly with, you know, the omics revolution, revolution, so, um, you know, genomics, sequencing technology, next generation sequencing and stuff like that, we've seen how much change might be just accumulating there in the absence of selection altogether. And that, that kind of brings us back to my general definition and i and i realize, and i think we should maybe keep hashing that out a bit but i realize that a lot of biologists in particular be very uneasy about this um and i know i can reference specific um you know quotes of people being uneasy about this sort of thing specific reactions but again drift is evolution you don't require uh natural selection or even sexual selection to be working for there to be evolution, evolution just happens. So I've I've referred to it as prosaic. It's every day, you know, and so it is trivial. It's trivially true that systems evolve. What's not trivial is studying the mechanisms how different systems evolve, and all systems evolve in different ways. Uh, however, the fact that they evolve, the claim that I'm making, that's just a basement level factual, I am claiming it's factual, obviously, I'm, uh, f- you know, uh, claim about the nature of reality itself.
1: Yeah, fair. But your, uh, your thinking uh, involves some sort of, you know, also like natural selection, but in its pure, you know, meaning, right? Mm, because you're sure. saying that there is yes. a constraints yes. that, you know, environment yeah. puts on your progression. Sure. Sure. So, that, like, you know, this is kind of my problem with natural selection yeah, yeah, the definition yeah. as it is now because I would rather have that yeah. because the constraints that environment put to your progression further on, mm-hmm. you know, including your procreation, including your fitness in general, yeah. is what my understanding would natural selection would mean. And so, you yeah. know, sexual selection, natural selection as it's defined by Darwin and it is still defined now. Yeah. And um, what's the word? Um, artificial selection yeah. would be subsets of that yeah, yeah. and i uh, yeah but, I, t- I totally know but, what you but mean by, like the way the words work mm. it puts you know sexual uh, selection and artificial selection is kind of an opposition to nature mm. while they are just essentially working via the same mechanism yeah. like you know you have an agent that puts a constraints onto the progression of a thing yeah right
0: Yeah, no, I very much see what you're saying. You want to say, and I think it's apt. You're basically saying nature equals reality. Um, Yeah. And I I agree. It's just a you know a contingent fact of history of the evolutionary history of the concepts that we're discussing um, that natural selection means what it
1: does. And I think yeah, but it could be like you know it's it means like it's. You don't lose the meaning, kind of, right? If you elevate it to that point, you just make it clear. Yeah. No, I know what you mean, you, but I, I you just. You change the slight, a slight emphasis, but the meaning remains the same. Yeah. It's like, you know, there the are constraints that occur independently of you, and that your evolution is guided by them and driven by them because you want to fit in.
0: Yeah. Um... I mean,
1: not you want, but you are like, you need to fit in, otherwise yeah. you will
0: not. You're forced to fit in. Be- because yeah. because of what I would call, uh, and you know, I'm sort of gleefully cherry-picking terms out of different um, philosophical frameworks, so cherry-picking this out of Buddhism, I would call it interdependence. Because of your interdependence, you have to conform in certain ways to whatever is going on around you. And by the way, that doesn't matter you. You can be a quark or you could be a human. And you will be just as interdependent. That's why I see interdependence as a deep evolutionary principle, as a deep metaphysical principle. Nothing exists on its own. Quarks, if you separate them from their, you know, coalitions, from their groups of other quarks, which form, you know, atomic nuclei and protons, and you know, where well, they form hadrons, um, then they disappear. You know, <laughs> like they wink out of existence. <laughs> they decay. Um, they aren't dependent. And, you know, the same principle will be um, observable at every level of description, from the very, very, very tiny, all the way up to, obviously, humans, which are a quintessentially social organism. Um, but all organisms are dependent on their environment and are part of the environment that forms the selection pressure for, um, that. you know, forms the origin of the selection pressures, the constraints that work on all other organisms. All organisms are interdependent with their environment. So I like I, I totally get what you're saying. I'm all I'm saying is that I don't think it's a battle worth fighting to yeah try I not think think it's a
1: bit like, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Um, but uh, I fight the, the battle
0: the the world evolution, but I'm not going to fight the battle the, the the you know um, technical term natural selection basically.
1: But it, it's little bit you know, e- e- you will need them to come up with certain you know bit, uh, whatever catch word for catch phrase for the selection that you are talking about mm-hmm. and that you know the, the selection that is essentially the facilitator of change so you have basically as i see it right mm-hmm. you have a natural progression of uh, you know things through time mm-hmm. and if you don't have any environment uh, nearby then that that thing essentially is not Forced to change at all. So my question, my question then is whether you will call a uh, change without no, without any constraints on it. So like you know a uh, thing change that changes in vacuum. There is nothing that acts on it. Nothing that uh, puts any selection pressure on it, and it will still change because that will I guess it will be a. I mean we don't know whether it will change or not, but we expect it to change I guess. And mm-hmm. so whether you will call that change evolution
0: well I think there's potentially there is a tension here because my real response to that is that such a thing does not occur Um, however then that collapses my definition of evolution into change Uh, in in any sort of functional real-world sense. I don't believe that there's anything in reality that is not affected by other things. Um, So it's like evolution and change are different words, and we need to preserve that difference. And the way I'm doing that is by saying that evolution takes place when change is constrained, but change is always constrained. Therefore, there is no such thing as change that is not evolution. But I also just want to make reference to um, "quote unquote" biology's first law. So I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but um, there are there's a couple of of, um, of evolutionary theorists, McShea and Brandon, who have proposed something that they call the zero force evolutionary law and they've proposed that as biology's first law that's what they they say maybe this is a law like a law of physics and it basically is just this this law that where there is no constraint in terms of selection in terms of biological selection because they are talking about in biological contexts they're saying where there is no constraint things will diversify change will occur and they, have some interesting, um, con- they claim some interesting consequences for this. For example, they claim that this in and of itself leads to the increase in complexity that is observed in biological evolution because change occurs not just at the level of whole organisms, of course. Change also occurs, in the absence of constraint, at the level of differentiation between parts of organisms Uh, and that's how you get complexity you have organisms that have more and more working parts and of course those working parts have to work together to support the organism otherwise they will be selected against so i would argue they are constrained in their evolution by their interdependence with the other working parts of the organism but that's how complexity increases in terms of organismal evolution like you don't need active selection for complexity for complexity to be generated by what they call the zero force evolutionary law which let's be honest is basically just genetic drift um
1: okay so basically what you're saying is that whenever you have a system and basically you have a system at any point whether it's an atom or you know anything mm-hmm. higher than that you will have uh, constraints within the system to keep it as a system so, if you have something that is not a system, it won't be able to change because it is not made of elements, and therefore its ability to, you know, change is just not to be, or to be or not to be. Yeah, yeah,
0: It's not that it won't be able to change; it's that it won't be able to exist. Uh, so, I don't think things. I mean, this this is now sounding very. This could sound very. Um, it could almost sound New Agey. It's certainly very metaphysical. But I am not sure. Let me phrase it this way, because I'm not sure about yeah. any of this stuff. Obviously, I am not sure that it's possible for something, some uh, you know irreducible element, uh, you know, like an atom in the you know atomistic sense, sense, in the yeah, democratic, democratic sense. sense, yes, yeah, to exist without interaction with other things, right? That it could independently exist, and I think that the uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a physicist, obviously, but I, I do pay a lot of attention to physics. And I think that one of the um, things that, say, like the particle collider experiments demonstrate to us is this principle. Because when you you know fire atoms at each other at close to the speed of light and they collide and they explode into their constituent parts... Those constituent parts very rapidly decay. They decay in you know periods of time which are referred to with exotic you know measure name you know units of measurement like femtoseconds. You know ridiculously quickly those things cease to exist. And of course part of the the whole point of doing the atom smashing is to um, is to study their decay because they decay in ways that are interesting and that. Tell us something about the deep structure of reality, um, and but it seems to me that the evidence there is suggesting that these things are unstable unless they are associated with others of their kind. Essentially, oh, it doesn't have to be others of their kind, obviously, but unless they form into systems of association, they are terminally unstable.
1: Terminally unstable is a good name for some band <laughs> yeah. or punk albums. Sure. Mm-hmm. I like it. And we, we probably uh, do
0: it's... need some levity in this conversation because it's been a bit heavy and theoretical at this point. But <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay. So um, then the, I guess, you know, the question is because you are, since you're framing evolution in this yeah. way, yeah. And you're saying that, you know, any change that occurs and, you know, any constraint change will, you know, necessitate evolution or other will be evolution. Uh, with that, then biological evolution becomes a different beast then, right? Because it uh, behaves, case. you know, via, like, you know, specific to biology mm-hmm. mechanisms. Yes, and so
0: yes, and no, in interesting ways, but yeah, sorry, continue.
1: Okay, and so the question then that would be how would you get some, you know, metaphysical insight or insight in the nature of reality in general Mm. by studying a baboon? Because baboon (laughs) is evolving via, you know, specific to biology, specific to baboon mechanism.
0: Well, I think in the first instance, uh, you would get that insight by recognizing uncontroversially particularly today that the baboon is an evolutionary system right Um. And, and if you if you follow the extension of that kind of thought i think you are inexorably drawn into into metaphysics and it might be really difficult for me to you know in a very brief um and lucid way to say how that occurs but you have to think, like evolution is a, is a, is a, the study of the evolution of any given organism is an historical endeavor, right? It's reverse engineering. So, what kind of question are we asking in, in, in evolutionary biology about a baboon? We're asking about its evolutionary history, you know, and, and all of the, the lovely phylogenetic trees that show relationships between organisms and things that, you know, you and I work with and that, that are very powerful uh, tools. Um, are depictions of history. So we're reverse engineering. We're trying to say, you know, how did the baboon get to be the thing that we are observing? How does this thing that I'm now looking at with all its complexity from behavioral to physiological, how did that get to be here? And that's going to draw you into asking deep questions about reality unless you cut off your... Unless you say, I'm a biologist... And so I'm only interested in, or or you might even say I'm an ethologist, you know, I study baboon behavior, I'm interested in the the evolution of baboon behavior, but I just don't ask myself those other questions because they're outside my area of expertise. You can certainly do that, and I have no problem with that. If you don't want to ask deep questions about reality, then go for it. I mean, then, you know, excuse yourself from doing that. But if you follow the evolutionary logic or the logic of the arguments about how the baboon got to be a baboon from some sort of single cellular or protocellular, most recent common ancestor of all life, for example, then you're going to want to ask questions about the origin of life, aren't you? Uh, and of course, you know, notably unsolved at the moment, although we can talk about that as well. And that's going to take you into evolutionary chemistry, and then you're going to want to ask how did that why does chemistry start doing these sorts of funny things which seem to lead us in the direction of life you know chemistry had to be doing something life like before there was life you know evolu- evolutionary logic the logic of an evolutionary argument suggests that and then you're going to have to start asking about the physics and etc and what I think is that if you ask all those kinds of questions and you look at the evidence that comes out of all those different fields, what you are going to find is that some kind of evolutionary process, at least what I'm calling an evolutionary process, and I mean, I'm obviously far from alone in this. This isn't just, you know, Tim Jackson claims that this is evolution, but it's always been a kind of a fringe view because people have been a bit scared of it. But it's, I think, because it's it's a difficult thing to justify in some sense. And because... In a superficial way, and I do believe it's superficial, it seems to contradict some very, very deep principles uh, in Western science, such as principles like reductionism, essentialism, um, Platonism. And I mean, we can or, or we can avoid if we don't want to go too, um, you know, naughty and theoretical, we can avoid unpacking all of that stuff but i think this kind of evolutionary talking, talking thinking this pan evolutionary paradigm as i've been calling it it calls into question some of those sorts of things and those are very very deeply held ideals in science like the idea of, re- of reduction of the reduction of one field of investigation into another and the hoped for goal of having an ultimate theory which will be in the language of physics of course a mathematical description of the ultimate laws of reality that determine why everything is and if you follow evolutionary thinking to its, um, you know, utmost extensions, you're going to start questioning whether something like that is even remotely possible. And that makes a lot of people really uneasy because that's something that we desperately, desperately want. We want to be able to reduce everything into something that we can understand, that, you know, in, in the ideal, um, uh, in the ideal we can put on a, a single A4 page, you know, laws of physics on an A4 page, because we're very affra- now, I'm going to get very philosophical just for a second, and then I'll shut up. Um, because we, we are afraid. I mean, I'll shut up for a minute. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like in some
0: sense, we're afraid of the unknown, right? You know, and what humans are really good at doing, our great evolutionary innovation our great trait is understanding things is generalizing from things to principles etc and so we have this fundamental dream of having the principle and of course you can say that i'm claiming that's what evolution is but we we want to have a formula that is understandable at least if you've studied higher order mathematics um and can fit on a naval page, maybe, but that reduces all of the uncertainty. You know, some people are afraid of the idea of determinism because it re- removes free will. But in another sense, I think we're very, very attracted to that idea because it removes chaos. You know, we're very frightened of chaos.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, well, I mean, that's kind of, we you know, what sparked mythology and yeah. what sparked real totally. business and that we you know what in turn sparked science. Yeah. yeah. And the, I think all these the, things the, are the, so... Chaosing. Sorry but this But you can say? Now, in your own words, mm. I mean, yes, I mean, it's kind of, you know, the quest for universal <laughs> equation. Yeah. But in your own, you know, framework, mm-hmm. it would be, you can say that this, you know, fear of chaos, this yeah. kind of, you know, flight from chaos is yeah. essentially evolutionary force. Yeah. It's essentially like the essence of evolution. Mm-hmm. So, because more or less, yeah. so, I mean, there are some exceptions, but when you have a system evolving, it will be evolving towards greater complexity or order. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. Uh, order. Or, yeah. I mean, yeah. yes.
1: But, I mean, Again, you kind of you know you, there are parasites. There are yeah. certain things you kind of like. They don't you know feed in this idea in an obvious way. But on average, we see that the when you put you know selection pressures on the system, that that system can traverse by changing. It will change towards greater whatever order or complexity. And mm. error I guess, minimization.
0: You know, you know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> error what? minimization
1: yeah you can you know you can probably frame uh that you know evolutionary uh like theory of evolution of everything we're using that you know if you put okay error minimization is actually good if you put it there so you know evolution would be a uh change by you know selection constraints towards you know error minimization or something like that Mm -hmm. like that would kind of in all it you know it sounds less trivial now mm. and it has some you know potency to that and but i would still think that you know in a you know pure thought experiment if you get uh, a system that doesn't evolve uh, you know under constraints it's mm. kind of not evolving mm. so like still you need kind of in order to have it non-trivial you yeah. need to allow for things to not be it
0: yeah well for sure I mean that's a definitional issue and I'm not really yeah. I'm not I'm not concerned about that in terms of it being a you know a deep if evolution and change if you could construct an argument suggesting that my definition of evolution is really functionally equivalent to the definition of change because I'm claiming that there is no element of... you know, I'm not really concerned about that. That's a fun word game to play. And absolutely, we can have a thought experiment in which we can say, change just happens, nothing is interdependent, so everything is just changing independently, and that's non-evolutionary. And I'm totally happy with that. I don't think such a thing can exist, but... I'm happy with that. If you have yeah. that as a counter Okay,
1: but but in terms of you know metaphysical insights, yeah. I guess you know, uh, for, it is actually quite good. You know, for uh, people to, uh, you know, have some sort of thinking like that, it's yeah. just occasional. Maybe not, you know, holding it as like this is the way it is, but kind of you know this is the way to look at things at mm-hmm. least, mm-hmm. and that can definitely help. You know, you to have an insight on the. Uh, of whatever nature of events or something because no it just allows its different angle to look at things and you know i don't think a lot of people are looking at the minute uh you know events in reality like you know atom collision or something Hmm. but a lot of people you know people are usually preoccupied with people right with you know life of our kind Mm -hmm. with culture with our history Mm -hmm. and it definitely can help if you reframe history and culture like that it definitely helps you you know for starters to be less angsty about things that you can't change and that you know Mm -hmm. things that you don't think are proper and why people are doing this but if you frame it in the larger scheme of you know this is a cultural you know, trade, a cultural thing that, you know, culture does. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's there, it's not because, you know, people put it there in place and we should just change people. No, the reason it's there, because there are certain, you know, contingency, there are certain Mm -hmm. selection uh, pressures that led to the existence of it. And you can trace it how it started. And I think this is really, you know, worthwhile when you try to understand how I don't know, white supremacists for a sake of argument. How they, as how that is an idea, how it evolved, where are the roots, you know, can you trace it back towards the, I don't know, chimpanzees for the sake of argument? Probably you can, right, in some sort of xenophobia. And you, like, you can just see the way it changes and what, you know, societal selection pressures are shaping it. And then, that allows you to have an insight on how you're going to change it because the way to change it is not to battle with it because that will be an additional selection pressure on the thing and you'll be making it stronger if it can survive because it will be just you know then shaping by you and it will become stronger Mm -hmm. however you can go and check what are the selection pressures are and deal with them right Mm -hmm. so and that in turn will you know allow it like you can shape it without actually shaping it and i think you know just not just in culture but you know in human behavior because a lot of people are very dense in the way they behave yeah. they're really you know when especially they behave in groups that they're not really familiar with they you know tend to be over analyzing it they tend to be overanalyzing themselves the behavior of others and so on however if they take a some sort of you know evolutionary approach and just see a pack of chimpanzees you know instead of humans a lot of things become you know quite clear and you know obvious for instance you know my favorite example here i guess i don't know why I'm saying my favorite but just the example here the one that i would like now i guess would be uh, a karaoke you know singing this is just i mean this is like a pack of chimpanzees getting together after the sunset and just you know making noises and it's <laughs> It's really primeval, you know, especially if you have, you know, like, say, eight plus people, it really becomes a pack of apes just (laughs) bonding together through making noise. And the, you know, a lot, there is like a lot of transgressions happen during that time, you know, people would start, you know, uh, walking on the benches, they would be jumping, they would be, you know, being silly in a lot of ways, especially if they're drunk. Mm. And... If you're looking at them as humans, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It just becomes you know like a foolish behavior. But if you look at them as, you know, pack of apes, you can see that it makes perfect sense. That's just you know bonding through collective, you know, expression, through the expression of a sound that, you know, you are loud, you are powerful, that's you know makes you a pack. Mm. And, and that think, can remove a lot of angst mm. from humans who can't fit in because the idea is not to fit in with human dignity the idea is to fit in as a ape
0: yeah no i think that that's extremely apt i mean you just reminded me when you said when you're talking about packs you know it's the same as wolves howling together it's a it's a social bonding exercise um And yeah, I think, I guess the reason we, or the founding premise of this podcast to some extent was the idea that you can understand phenomena better in human phenomena, very much included cultural phenomena by situating them in their evolutionary context. I very strongly believe that. And I also think that this idea, like that doesn't require in some sense, the the deep extension of... Uh, evolutionary thinking to the structure of reality itself. I think it's aided by that, but you could obviously just say humans are animals, we evolved, and then just go from there and never be thinking, as you sort of said, you know, never be thinking about particles or, or you know, metaphysics. But I think that there's a there's a a very deep way in which this kind of metaphysical theorizing is far from inert socially. Um, you know, it, it makes a difference to our lives. It can make a difference to our lives. And one of the ways, I mean, I think partly just because it's an extension of all the things that you were just talking about. Um, but I think one of the ways in which this is also true is that one of the, one of the reasons that scientists have sometimes shied away, I think, from, from going to this nth degree with evolutionary thinking. Uh, or, with, or, or with, basically with engaging with metaphysics in general. Because they don't want to embrace the evolutionary history of science itself. You know, that science grew out of mythological thinking. And that it is a species of mythological thinking in a way. You know, you have... Often uh, not accused me, but sort of playfully joshed with me and, and said that really what I am is a mystic and I'm just a mystic that's looking for an empirical scientific framework, you know, to provide evidence for my mystic leanings. And I think that you know there's obviously a way in which that's true, and in which I embrace it, and I completely think it's true. I think the schism that and we've talked about this heaps, but the deep schism between science and mythological thinking, and therefore between science and religion is very much artificial. It's very much science and scientists not being comfortable with their own evolutionary history um, and I think that breaking those barriers down involves extending principles from science to you know their farthest reaches obviously we also acknowledge the limitations of certain kinds of science like maybe quantitative analyses for example they might not be applicable when it comes to love or you know whatever example you want to take but understanding the structure of reality itself seeing that it's evolutionary, seeing as above, so below, you know, that lovely um, alchemical quote, um, seeing that these principles that apply, like interdependence, you need to be part of a group. We are social organisms. Uh, You you know, there there are ways you can and can't behave. And one of the major constraints on that is the fact that you live in a society and all of that sort of thing. Um, And then seeing that in some way there is an analogy with quarks not being able to exist on their own. um, And then, you know, much closer to home, all organisms, even the very solitary organisms, are very dependent on their environment. You know, those kind of deep principles. It's like Stuart Kaufman, the biologist Stuart Kaufman. You know, he wrote a book called At Home in the Universe. Which is essentially about these sorts of ideas we are of this place we are not separate from it the principles that rule in our lives rule at all levels in different ways you know they aren't exactly the same we have many many properties that quarks don't have hence again the dream of you know total reductionism is destined to fail however There are properties that we share with quarks, and it couldn't be any other way. And we can learn a lot about our place here, and we can also come to appreciate all the different attempts that humans have made over cultural evolutionary history to explain our place here. We can see how they all interrelate to each other and get at similar truths or are in response to similar motivations. And you know, if you can use this kind of metaphysical thinking... Taking scientific principles and extending them everywhere to say break down barriers between religious thinking and science, you know, it becomes very, very far from inert socially. It becomes this massive thing. It's not, you know, we're not at war here. We are not coming from a different place. Humans are all doing similar stuff. The arts evolved in response to a similar need to turn chaos some kind of maybe it's just personal subjective chaos maybe it's an attempt to understand the world an attempt to understand a bull by painting it on the wall of a cave you know they all come from the same place like we're all i don't want to say we're all one
1: but we are you know like Fair, but i mean it will be like you know proper revolutionary thing right because yeah uh when a system evolves it tends to evolve towards yeah i mean greater I know water, but it like it tends to evolve a new way to evolve and yeah. you know it like tends to evolve a level up mm-hmm. because if you can't solve you know it like a lot of you know uh, problems on the level like one are not are very easy to solve on the level two right yeah. so when you're a single cell organism you know the gradient of sugar and the drop of water is really hard for you to solve. Like, you know, you need to be navigating in a drop of water. Mm -hmm. If you're a multicellular, you know, mammalian, you just can take the entire drop of water. Mm -hmm. Like, you have other problems, but the problems on the, you know, lower levels are not a problem to you at all. And that's, you know, I guess one of the reasons why evolution tends, the biological evolution tends to go that way. And I mean, you can say even, you know, like, the entire evolution tends to go that way, like stars, you know, come to existence because Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, the bigger the star, the bigger the star will become, right? Yeah, and
0: the more it will affect the environment around it in an interdependent way, thus changing the evolutionary landscape that it's exploring. You know, so I, yeah. I know you want to keep going, just one thing on, on exactly yeah. what you said. It's like, yes, we, we go to a new level to transcend the old problems, but then our evolutionary landscape is full of a bunch of new problems, and now we have to and respond I, to those, and that's why it's yeah. a never-ending process.
1: Yeah, but I guess you know that's kind of what we see now, yeah. because humanity now is going through the process of unification, mm. and I mean, internet is largely facilitating that just, you know, interconnectedness is, you know, like a huge drive in that. And we now are facing a lot of problems that we kind of thought that we've dealt before. But because we now on the, you know, higher level, we need to solve them on this level, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, like freedom of speech, for instance, we kind of thought that we are, you know, have it. But now it seems like we don't. We have to solve it now on the level of the entire humankind. But it then follows that... Uh, once we traverse those, you know, pitfalls, we will become a one thing because that just inevitably follows from, you know, unicellular organism to the entire species becoming one thing to, you know, the entire planet becoming one system. And mm. like, you know, humans will, you know, as a humankind in its proper way, once they're connected in the same way that, you know, nervous system is connected, right? So we are now at the stage, I would say, some, some you know, past, uh, you know, Cnidarians, so we don't have a diffuse nervous system as humans, but we're still not in the central nervous system. Mm. But once we as humans become that central nervous system, we will essentially be nervous system for the planet we, because we will be, you know, we are already deciding what happens where, you know, where we allow other animals to live, where we don't allow them to live, how we're using oceans, how we're using, you know, whatever deserts and so on. So it is inevitable that that will just happen. And in the process of that, we will become one, you know, not only within our kind, but with the planet itself. On the different way that, you know, new agey people are thinking that it should become, but it will become.
0: Well, it will it become that in some ways and in new ways. And it already is that in some ways. And then we'll also differentiate in other ways. You know, that's that's that also constant push-pull dynamic between unification and differentiation. Those, are, those
1: Oh yeah. Are... They will be like, you know, people from Mars and they'll be like, yeah, Sorry. those weird people from Mars. Yeah, those they leave the guys that live on Mars they don't really know the right way to be, you know. We here on Earth know it better.
0: <laughs> and that's why there's this truth in opposites, you know, it's true that we're all one, as as so many new agey people want to claim. It's also true that we're all different. Um, you know, so both sides of that opposite division are very true, but you know we are I think you you know you sort of hinted at it there. We are making the interdependence of organisms and their environment very boldly obvious to everybody right now, you know anyone who cares to look or who can look. Uh, it's always been the case that organisms, form you know part of the environment of other organisms and are often the most important part of the environment of other organisms yeah. you know as as you know very well the reason we have the composition of the atmosphere that we have, the reason that it's relatively stable, etc., is because of organisms. It's not that we got this great atmosphere for our kind of life and then we evolved. It's because organisms created this kind of atmosphere and then we evolved to suit that. And now humans are just taking that to the next level. You know, we are in such a short period of time. We're having this dramatic effect on the biosphere. And, you know... It is. This is what is true about the Gaia hypothesis. Again, it's a kind of it's a a, a concept that gets poo-pooed a lot by scientists. That gets championed by uh, new age thinkers. And there are lots of ways of phrasing it, which are a little bit ridiculous, perhaps. But, you know, we shouldn't forget that the people who originally came up with it, James Lovelock and then and, and Lynn Margulis, were scientists, and they knew a lot about the environment. Um, and it's true. We are interdependent. We are all part of one big biosphere. And whatever we do to this planet that we have, it not only margi- marginalizes a lot of our codependence, other organisms, it also ultimately risks us marginalizing ourselves so again understanding that deep evolutionary principle of interdependence can be very normative you know it's very far from being impotent theorizing or philosophical navel gazing it's it's a call to action in some sense as well it's like you've got this thing you are dependent on it and it's dependent on you we've all got to
1: live together yep we're all going to live together (laughs) but The difference i guess you know we're kind of probably wrapping it up so but the difference between you know the state of like pre-human state of interdependency Mm -hmm. and uh you know human state of you know the way the planet is now is that it follows the usual trajectory over you know evolving system that it evolves towards the more um like, you know, difference in control, like it evolves hierarchical of control. Mm -hmm. First, you start with a system that all parts of it play, you know, essentially the same kind of, you know, role in terms of power. So if you remove one in any, you know, single part of it, the system will continue to function and then new parts will, you know, come to fulfill the, you know, role. While through the course of evolution, it evolves towards, you know, uh, some parts becoming more important than others, say nuclei or nervous system, and now it's humans. So for you know Earth right now, it's humans. If you remove humans out of the planet right now, it will go through dramatic change. Like you know, it will be just radically different, really, really soon after if humans, mm-hmm. you know, whatever evaporate, because humans are now the most important thing that there is on planet Earth yeah as far as you know the system is concerned
0: for sure but it obviously is going through a kind of change a rapid change at an unprecedented rate if we stay as well and because of us yeah um yeah, yeah. and so yeah, one, yeah, sure, sure. one possibility you know in terms of humans quote unquote getting their act together or as I put it in this article, you know, continuing to play the iterated game of getting our acts together because, as we just discussed, when we solve one problem, we'll create new problems. And there is no ultimate stability. There is no permanence of any state because change is ubiquitous. But one of the possibilities is that we do learn to stabilize things a little bit better so that we are able to exist here for a longer period of time because, you know, there's only a certain range of conditions which are conducive to human flourishing. We want to keep the earth within that range. And we also want to have biodiversity um, that we get many services from, that we get much aesthetic enjoyment from, etc., that we are codependent with. Um, So one of the things, there's there's a guy, an astrobiologist called David Grinspoon, who's talked about the notion of the big payback so you know humans have contributed greatly to a current ongoing mass extinction event Uh, however we're also the only organism in the position to prevent mass extinction events and when he talks about that he's not just talking about us reversing or stabilizing the effects that we've had thus far he's talking about us having the ability to say deflect or prevent meteor strikes or to prevent you know volcanic super eruptions and things like that so we have this ability to mold things which will be good for everybody for for all the organisms uh that occur on the planet along with us potentially yeah
1: <laughs> well i think we we can finish on this positive note to Looking forward into the bright future of Earth evolution and humans as the Shepherds, the shepherds of Earth.